0: And we'll be reading Acts 17, uh, verses 16 through verse 34. So listen now to the reading of God's holy word once again. Now while Paul awaited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? And others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship, without knowing, Him I proclaim to you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with men's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophet- poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere all men everywhere, to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all, by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. And so Paul departed from the, among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, Demar- and with others with them. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. Oh, gracious God in heaven, again, we rejoice and give thanks for the gift that you give given to us in your word. And as we come to this passage, as we consider the topic before us this evening, we pray, Lord, that you would truly instruct our hearts, that we would see how you truly are all-sufficient, and that you stand alone and without needing anything. And yet in your good pleasure and according to the good plan of your purpose, you desire to use us and to bless us. And so we just pray, Father, that we would understand these truths. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So here in this passage, as the Apostle Paul is awaiting his companions in Athens... He walks around the city and he's, of course, taking in the sights. And one of the things that strikes him is the multiple shrines and the altars to the various gods that the people of Athens worshipped. But what he found even mo- more interesting was an altar erected to the unknown god. Almost just in case they had forgotten some god. It, The Athenians didn't want this God to get angry with them. And so in a catch-all, kind of make sure all your bases are covered kind of way, they they had this altar where people could pay homage to this unknown God. Although Paul had already taken opportunity to to preach uh, in the synagogues and in the marketplace... He used this altar to the unknown God as a lead-in to present the gospel when he was brought into the Areopagus, the chief marketplace of ideas in Athens. As Paul begins his discourse, he mentions this altar to the unknown God, and then he begins to declare this unknown God as being the one true living God. For though this God was unknown to the Athenians, he was certainly known by Paul as the Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Paul quickly distinguishes this true God from all the other false gods and idols that the Athenians worshipped. He's the God who is the creator. He wasn't created by the hands of men. He is the God who gives life and sustains all things. His existence doesn't depend on the imaginations of men or upon gold and silver. He sovereignly rules over all things that he's created. He's not influenced by the thoughts, desires, or the decisions of man. He's a God completely and fully independent of all mankind, all creatures, and all creation. He doesn't need these in order to survive or have his being. He is the God who was and is and who will be forever God. He's all sufficient in and of himself. And because He's all-sufficient in and of Himself, He then is all-sufficient for us and for our needs. This all-sufficient God is what we consider this evening. But first, what do we mean when we say that God is all-sufficient? Well, basically this means that God doesn't depend on anyone. He sustains Himself. He's independent of all things. And again, we considered this a bit a couple weeks ago when we looked at God's incommunicable attributes. That God is fully and completely independent of all creation. That is, He doesn't derive His existence from anything because He simply is. And this is what we discover again in the very first verse of the Bible, in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God God was all all there was in the beginning. There was nothing but God because God hadn't created anything yet. Westminster Confession in chapter 2, paragraph 2 addresses God's all-sufficiency this way, saying, God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of Himself and is alone in and unto Himself all-sufficient not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, nor deriving any glory from them. So God truly is all in all, that is, he is life. Life is in him, and life comes from no one else but him. Jesus in John 5 says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself. That God doesn't need food, nourishment, water, nutrients, chemicals, attention, material, substance, air, shelter, clothing, or anything to exist. He's all sufficient within himself. The one true living God needs nothing at all, especially nothing from us, the lowly creature. And this is what Paul sought to communicate to the Athenians in verse 24 and 25. Is says, God who made the world and everything in it, since He is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He worshipped with man's hands, as though He needed anything, since He gives to all life, breath, and all things. Paul's saying that because God is independent of all that He has, has been created, He doesn't need the creation, He doesn't need the creature, He doesn't need mankind, In order to survive, again, he doesn't even need us. Or the praise and the glory that we give him, as Eliphaz, one of the the friends of Job, notes in Job 22, saying, Can a man be profitable to God? Though he who is wise may be profitable to himself. Is it any pleasure to the Almighty that you are righteous? Or is it gain to him that you make your ways blameless? The answers to all these questions he poses are no. There's no gain to God. There's no gain to God if we're righteous or good. Our goodness and the glory we give really adds nothing to God because he's already sufficient. He's complete within himself. We can't add anything anything more to him. Now this may startle some a bit. When we think about God... God doesn't need us? No, he doesn't. If he did, well, then we'd have to wonder how could God exist for all eternity past before he created us and all things? He certainly couldn't if he needed us. Indeed, God is so much greater than all the creation of mankind. He is glorious. He is all glorious, truly without us. Now, this is pretty humbling for us. And indeed, to lower us down even a few more notches, God doesn't need us to be His hands, to accomplish what He desires to accomplish. Sometimes we hear people that we're the the hands and feet of, of Jesus, or the hands and feet of God to carry forth the gospel and to do whatever it is God needs to have done in the earth. But God doesn't depend upon us to do anything for Him. Now aside from the fact that we're not very dependable, first off, God works out his own will irrespective of what we do or don't do. And so if we refuse to take the gospel someplace, God will still see that the gospel reaches that place if that's his plan and purpose. But the amazing thing is, is that even though God doesn't need us, even though He doesn't need the rest of creation, He still created everything for a plan and for a purpose. And because God created all things, we know that He alone must be sovereign over all things, again, as we were just noting. Again, here the Confession states it this way, that he uh, He alone is the fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them for them or upon them whatsoever himself pleases now we'll look at some of this uh, Lord willing in a couple of weeks when we look at the decrees of God but there's several things to note here first God is the fountain of all being all things even life itself flows from God The Apostle Paul notes in Romans 11 saying, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. That's exactly where the Westminster Divines got that part in the confession. Taking it right from uh, Paul's words in Romans 11. And then also in Colossians 1. For by Him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things consist. And so here again, we see God's sovereignty and His dominion over all that He's created. But you also see here, Another important truth we'll consider again, the the Trinity, Lord willing, next time. But here Paul is actually attributing the work of God to Jesus Christ in the context of what Paul is saying in Colossians 1. He's talking about Christ, the word of God become flesh, that he is the source and center of all things, even as God the Father is and certainly the Holy Spirit is as well. And so God is the fountain of all of all things. Secondly, because God has created these things, again He has the sovereign power <clears throat> and dominion over them, even to do and accomplish whatever He pleases. Again, this is what we just considered with King Nebuchadnezzar, and of course he found this out the hard way—that God is able to do what He pleases, even with uh, those outside of what is considered the people of God, even outside of Israel, God still is in control of, of other heathen nations and leaders and kings. Again, Nebuchadnezzar confesses, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are repeated as nothing. He does according to His will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Right? No one can restrain the hand of God because He's sovereign over all things because His plan and purpose does come about. And thirdly, we also want to note the prepositions that are used in the Confession that God does by them, for them, or upon them. Anything that He pleases by them is meant all creation, including mankind. And we know that God directs the steps of all creatures, even mankind. Proverbs 16, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. The confession also mentions whatsoever God pleases, that is, according to His good pleasure. Now what can we know about this? But well, first, God will accomplish His will and purpose according to His own time schedule. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, Which He will manifest in His own time, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And here Paul, speaking of Christ's return at the perfect and appointed time that God has set. Christ will not come too late. He will not come too soon. He will come at the perfect time that God Himself has appointed. And so God's will is accomplished in the same manner, at the perfect time. It can be challenging for us sometimes when we pray for the Lord and, and we make our petitions before Him that, Lord, we, we need an answer here, and we, but then we have to wait. But the answer does come, and it always comes at the perfect time. And hopefully, during that time of waiting, our hearts have been drawn even closer to the Lord and so God will accomplish his will and purpose according to his own time schedule. Secondly, his sovereign plan will need to be accomplished. <clears throat> or it is, it is indeed accomplished. It's guaranteed. And right? again, we just read earlier uh, from Nebuchadnezzar's confession, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Also the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 46, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man who executes my counsel from a far country. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. it, I will also do it. And so here you see God, before anything happens, God has already declared it. The end of that matter, from the very beginning, and we see here this saw his sovereignty not over not only over the birds of prey but even of mankind. All that we do is according to God's plan and purpose, and God brings it about. Who are we to stand in the way of God's plan? What power do we have to stop His plan and purpose? We don't. He will do it, and that's His. Certain promise that He gives here. Thirdly, much of God's good pleasure <clears throat> is really the reason, or is, is the reason behind what He does. We need to understand that it is often a great mystery, and so we don't often know why God does what He does. Again, Isaiah fifty-five, verse eight: "For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways," says the Lord. And so we may wonder and question. We may ponder and speculate about things, but because God and his wisdom is infinite, we can't fully comprehend all that he does and why he does it. We can if he reveals it to us and shows it to us, but there are many things that the Lord does that we just do not understand because we can't understand because of our finite uh, limits. And so God is certainly sovereign, Over all things, and closely related to this, is God's omniscience. That is, God knows everything, and can nothing can be hidden from Him. And this ties in well with His sovereignty. If He's planned and purposed all things, well, then of course He knows all things. The Confession states that in His sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to Him contingent or uncertain. Now this doctrine of God's omniscience again tied to his sovereignty and his eternal decree is important and one that's come under attack in in recent years. Even in the evangelical circles under the teaching of the openness of God or sometimes referred to as open theism. If you come across it just run in the other direction. This view uh, open, open theism, teaches just the opposite of what the confession states. It teaches that God doesn't know all things, that God is faced with uncertainties, or that he can be faced with uncertainties, and that God's decrees, even his knowledge, is ultimately contingent upon the creature. And namely, that creature being mankind. So man is given all the power. But the scriptures are clear that God does indeed know all things, even the end from the beginning, as we just noted in Isaiah forty six. The writer to the Hebrews notes in Hebrews four thirteen, and there is no creature hidden from him, from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. And so we see that God is not surprised by anything. Nothing is hidden from him. Even something as random as the casting of lots is not only known by God before it happens, but it's actually been appointed by Him. Proverbs 16, verse 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. And so you think you're you're, uh, making a random choice. Well, God has appointed it. Nothing is random because He knows it, because He's appointed it. And certainly God doesn't look down the corridor of time and, and see that what man will do and then decide, okay, well, I'm going to make my decision based on that knowledge. Well, if he did that, well, then he would be fully dependent upon mankind. No, God decrees, and so it shall be, even before man does anything, even before man was created, God appointed the numbers of our days. And again, we see this, and we'll look at this, Lord willing, in a couple weeks in relation to God's decree of election. Romans 9, Paul says, and not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac. For the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls, it was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. So God's decree of election was determined before Jacob and Esau were born, before they even existed, even before the foundation of the world. God truly knows all things. And because God knows all things, as the confession continues, He is most holy in all His counsels, in all His works, and in all His commands. So God doesn't make mistakes God never resorts to plan B if plan A fails, because with God, plan A never fails. It's the perfect plan and the only plan because God never changes his mind. And again, he's not uh, dependent upon what we do, God is most holy. That is, he is most pure and upright in all that he does, plans and commands. And as Abraham confesses in Genesis 18, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And so ultimately there is no injustice with God because he will always do what is good and right according to his own perfect standard, according to his own good pleasure, and according to what he has eternally decreed. Finally, because God is the sovereign creator... And because He is independent and self-sufficient, well, then mankind and even all creation is called to recognize this and give praise, glory, and honor to His name. Psalm 96, Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples, give to the Lord glory and strength, give to the Lord glory to His name, bring an offering and come into His courts. And so it's our duty as creatures created by God to give Him all glory, honor, and praise. And again the confession states to him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. God alone is to receive glory, praise, honor, and worship. In Psalm 19 David declares that the heavens declare the glory of God. And so if the heavens do this, well then how much more so the creature that God has uniquely created after his own image. So yes, we must Give glory to God. Indeed the very purpose of man and creation is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? That's the first question and answer of the Shorter catechism. 1 Corinthians 10 Paul says, Therefore whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so all mankind, all creation must give glory to God. It is our duty and our purpose. It's what we were created to do wait didn't we say earlier that God doesn't need our glory or praise and didn't the confession even go so far as to say that he does not derive any glory from them so how can God receive glory from man or the creation well I purposely skipped over an important statement in the confession not deriving any glory from them but only manifesting His own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. And so the thrust of the statement is that in and of ourselves we cannot please or glorify God. Especially in our state of of sin and misery. As Paul testifies in Romans 8, so then those who are the flesh cannot please God. Now it's only God working in us It's only God working by us, only God working unto us or upon us that we can please or glorify Him. And even when we do so, again, we're not really adding anything to Him. We're simply acknowledging the glory that is already His, that He already has, that is already perfect in Him. And truly then, God is most pleased and glorified when we confess and profess Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. Because He sent Jesus, His own beloved Son, for again the express purpose to glorify Himself. And so that when sinners come to faith in Christ Jesus, that we then serve to glorify God because again we magnify the work of Christ and what he has done for us. How humbling it is truly that though God doesn't need us he did create us and he does care for us and he does use us to glorify his majestic name that we might be faithful witnesses to him throughout all the earth. Just praying oh gracious God and heavenly father we rejoice and give thanks for this understanding that you are all sufficient and if there's ever a doctrine that truly humbles us and puts us in our place it is this truth you don't need us you didn't need to create us there's nothing that we can add to you and yet, according to your good pleasure, because of the perfections of your character, your goodness, your love, your compassion, your mercy, you created us. And not only did you create us, but you sent your Son to deliver us and save us. That through your works, the works of your hands, we might bring glory and echo glory to your name, even as the heavens do, declaring it as a witness to those around us, that you alone are the one true living God, that you alone are worthy of our worship and our praise. As Paul confronted the Athenians about the vanity of all their idols that they worshipped, But this unknown God, you have been pleased to reveal to us. And so we pray, Father, that you would truly bless us. That you would draw us all closer to yourself. That you would truly work in us and through us and upon us to continue to bring glory to your name. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.